Welcome to the Endurance Podcast. My name's Mark Lathwaite, and I'm here with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be talking about what's new in the world of endurance sports, and we'll also be telling you how you can achieve your best on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Afternoon, boys. Okay, before we go any further, I think we need to do the weather check. Mike, coming to you. Uh, we are in between in Wales today. It's a little bit of sunshine, but it could rain at any minute. Okay. Ian? Very similar here in Birmingham. Yeah, we've got clouds, but no rain at the moment. And it's maybe a little bit, yes, a little bit bright, so promising. Super. Yeah, well, it's about the same here, I think. So I think we timed it well. I think half an hour either way on the podcast and the and the uh, the feedback on the weather could have been very, very different. But for now, we'll take what we've got. We'll, we'll have in between. That's better than rain, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, so this week um, we've got a well, we've got a guest on uh, uh, who we're going to be chatting to later on about sports nutrition. But uh, before we come to that, we've uh, we're going to cover the things that have been going through our minds this week. And um, one of the uh, the key things is uh, research within the areas of sports uh, sports injuries and within sports science, the fields of sports science, and how that research filters down, if you like, and impacts on the average athlete on the street and. Uh, I wanted to open this week by going back to something we discussed last week. We had a, we were talking about running shoes and uh, you know the research that's been done into running shoes and what the best type of running shoes for each individual person. And I made a comment last week about how research potentially can get misinterpreted. So the journal article we were specifically talking about was one that uh, Ian, you actually published it online, didn't you, on on Twitter? Yeah. And it was some research from a few years ago which had said that uh, the outcome of this research was that. Whichever shoes you find comfortable, they're the shoes that you should buy. And I see that quite a lot uh, on social media and various blogs. People use that a lot and they've jumped on it. Um, it basically implies that, you know, all the, uh, that, that whatever shoe is comfortable, that's the shoe for you. And that's as simple as there is to it. Um, but one of the conversations we had again last week, we we're talking about running shoes. Uh, Mike, you, you mentioned that you like to switch your shoes around and run in different shoes. And um, you made a comment that if you run in a pair of lightweight racing flats, um, it will often make your calves quite tight. So you might use them for a speed session, but you wouldn't use them for a long run because you know that if you're running those racing flats for a long run, it may cause you uh, to get a calf injury. Okay, so my question here is someone who owns a running shop, myself, is that I know from what, based on what you said last week, uh, Mike, and I'd agree with you, if I had some guy came into my store who, you know, big guy, 16 stone, has only just taken up running and puts a pair of racing flats on and says to me, they feel really comfy. And they've read that the online that the research says you should buy based on if a pair of shoes is comfy, you should buy them. I know that person's going to go out the door and probably have calf problems within a week. So, uh, you know, based on that's my, the, the, one of the big things for discussion today is how research potentially can be misinterpreted, if you like. So, uh, Mike, I'm just going to come to you first and what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, so th there's two answers, I think, with this. So 
many moons ago when I was lacking grey hair and doing lots more activity, then there was a real lag between the academic world producing research and the everyday world getting that research. And I think the number that was always banded around was something like 16, 17 years for that to transition through, which obviously is completely outdated by the time it gets through. So a lot of the things in the rehab injury world were actually outdated principles before they became fads. So that's definitely changed. The lag has been reduced. We've got social media. We've got a lot of people on social media who are very talented. We know that the academic world is very good at producing research. But now we've got a, a, a band of people who are very good at disseminating that research in a much more easily digestible, easy to understand manner. So the lag is better and research is filtering down. We've now got a new problem. So what's happened now is that sexy cells, so very much like a tabloid headline or a um, clickbait that you'd see online a lot of the time, people are selling shock stories using articles, using research or their interpretation of research regarding injuries. And people, rather than then going into the reads of that article and seeing the intricacies, the methodologies, the actual sort of conflictions and confounding factors of some research. They're just seeing the headline, like yourself, when you said about the wear comfortable shoes, and they're either making assumptions or they're listening to what they or they're taking what they want to take from that message and then perhaps misinterpreting it further on. So we've improved. It is better. It is get research is becoming far more accessible. But how we transition it to the everyday person, not you know, the, the truth is that the real answers to do with rehab, exercise, training, being consistent, being committed, being dedicated, allowing a bit of time and patience for things to change and get better is boring. That doesn't sell. But if I can jazz it up, make something quite shiny, put the old Gucci touch in it, then people will will go for it a little bit more. So so evidence is is fighting against the industry. It's fighting against sales and marketing companies. So that's a long-winded way of saying it's better, but we've still got new problems now that we need to address with research getting down to the masses. Yeah, and I think that the, the term clickbait, as you use, is an interesting one because that's a real headline, isn't it? Whatever pair of shoes feels comfortable, that's a pair of shoes to buy. And that's completely opposite to what people have been saying for the, maybe the last 10 years. So uh, that, that clickbait thing is, I think people are really keen to, to maybe not just misinterpret things, but maybe purposefully misinterpret things yeah. because they get hits. They get, you know, people will read the articles. And, uh, you know, I, that, that one journal in particular, that journal article, I've seen that recycled so many times on running forums and Facebook pages and on Twitter where people say, the research says just buy a pair of shoes that, that feels comfortable and that's that's what you should buy on. Uh, you know, my slippers are comfortable, but I won't go out running 10 miles in them because I get injured. Yeah. Um, now, Ian, you've actually put the um, the article online. You put the full journal article online and you read it. I'm just wondering what your your take on it, you know, as the uh, the, the academic here. Uh, what was your take on the article when you read it in full? I, I think uh, there's some uh, those sort of... Um, headlines that you get from that are quite not really doing justice to the article i think what uh, the message that should be communicated is that 
when we're making when we're reflecting on the comfort of the running shoes after using them for an extended period of time that's giving us sort of intuitive feedback on um whether that shoe is fitting well with our our own personal mechanics and our preferred running style and if we're having to sort of fight against the shoe then they feel uncomfortable or they're giving us sort of niggles at the end of a run whereas if something is fitting with our personal running style then we find it comfortable but that's having reflected on maybe running five or six miles several times in a pair of shoes not what we um, maybe gauge when we walk around a running shop or do a 10 yard run down the street in a running shoe when we're first trying them out so if we're going to make a judgment about the comfort of a running shoe and whether that is one that is suited to us it should be based on having maybe purchased the shoe and then used it over several weeks and then over uh, two or three purchases then we can start to make judgments about what type of running shoes maybe fit our style and are best for us in terms of sooners and also best for us in terms of specific sessions as Mike said so it might be that a certain shoe fits well when we're racing a marathon um, or doing speed sessions or doing hill sessions or might be our general trainer for you know, our mileage shoe so we might have different shoes for different purposes and ones that feel good when we're doing those kind of sessions so we might have a shoe that if we're going out for a long easy run feels good for us and we think yeah that's comfortable but that might not be one that feels right if we're trying to up the pace and run at a high intensity so i think we you know you need to get into the detail of the, of the article and what they're saying in terms of what that's um telling us but yeah this was a very experienced researcher that was leading this paper and they were reflecting upon over 40 years of research but in some ways i think a lot of people have taken from that is you know 40 years of research and, and the best we can come up with is that um if a shoe is comfortable then we should wear it i think what they were actually saying is that um uh, there's something intuitive that we we can gain from our own experience of wearing shoes that probably it should inform our shoe choice um that's not to sort of dispel a lot of the research evidence that's looking at specific elements of running mechanics and so on but maybe that is all too sort of reductionist in terms of informing ultimately what shoe someone should be using um so uh, there's something to be gained from our own personal experiences um yeah. of a shoe so it's more i suppose the word it's how you define the word comfort isn't it it's, it, it's, it's yeah, yeah. comfort find as when you put it on does it feel nice or is comfort defined as how it functions when you're out running yeah so if you need that more cushioning or support or whatever it may be you'll you will feel that that shoe is more suited to you when you're running in that shoe yeah so a particular shoe might block someone's style when they're running at a certain pace it might suit a style when they're running at another pace and that might be why you need two or three different pairs of shoes but they should all feel uh, they should be giving you feedback that that is the right shoe for you um, when you're doing those type of sessions so if you've seen something about you know read a review on a particular shoe that says that it's very good for um, running on certain types of terrain for trail running but then you wear it and it doesn't feel right then that should that's probably telling you something about whether that shoe suits you um, yeah. shouldn't be true and same you know if you look at some of the road shoes now now that are suggesting that they can actually give you an enhancement of three or four 
percent of your performance, mentioning no um, names of brands, obviously, but I think people know which shoes I'm talking about. I, I'm sure there are a significant number of people that would put that type of shoe on and not feel comfortable in it. And it might not suit someone who's running a marathon in sort of four and a half. That four percent was based on someone who runs at, you know, two hour marathon pace. Mm. Uh, or just yeah. outside two hours marathon uh, pace and elite runners and it was developed for them so uh, there's every chance that someone who's running four four and a half hours for a marathon might not feel well suited in, in that particular shoe um, yeah. so um, we need to be sort of critical of um, what works for us um, regardless of what review articles and um, research supporting a particular shoe might be telling us yeah yeah but I think sometimes as well, the problem is like with, with research, it seems to let itself down. And maybe I'm just not experienced enough in this, but I don't understand why sometimes. I mean, I think it's sometimes an issue because research articles themselves, the way they're written, the terminology, the language, the statistics, they're not really easily accessible by most people. If most people tried to read them, they'd probably give up halfway through the abstract. You know, so they're written in a certain language for a certain kind of person. But, uh, you know, we, we, we discussed uh, just before the podcast, we had a little chat there about another article which I'd seen this week uh, online posted by a podiatrist. And what the research was, was asking is, basically, does a gait analysis uh, reduce your chances of getting injured? And the, uh, the, when you read the conclusion in the abstract, the words, it basically just said, uh, if you have a gait analysis, you are more likely to get injured. And that was the, the wording. If you have a gait analysis, you are more likely to get injured. When you read into the discussion, uh, what they were saying is that potentially more people, people when people come for gait analysis, they come for gait analysis because they've got an injury. And I would say from my experience in the store, that's what we get. People come in, people who aren't injured don't ask for gait analysis. People who are injured ask for gait analysis. And what they've done is post gait analysis, they've reviewed and asked people the question, did you have an injury in the 12 or 24 weeks post your gait analysis? And if they've gone in with an injury, then after the gait analysis, most of them are probably going to still be injured at some point for the next 12 weeks. So the results for that reason would be really skew whiff. It's a, I guess it's a bit like it's a bit like me interviewing 50 people the, the week after they've seen Mike and saying, uh, did you have an injury this week? Most of them would still say yes, because they're only one week post say, uh, seeing Mike. And me publishing an article saying, if you see Mike James, you are likely to get injured the following week. And it just, you know, the way it was interpreted just seemed really odd. And it don't do themselves any favours. And I don't understand why they have to write it in that language. Um, that You have to go and delve into the discussion to understand that what they actually said in the, in the title is, is just probably not true. Um, I don't know, Mike, have you got any thoughts on that? So again, it goes on to um, the, there are certain people out there who are exceptional at bridging the gap between taking that evidence and then putting it into really good form. Uh, one of the best people out there right now is a guy called Jan Lemur, YLM Sports Science. Jan is very good at interpreting this stuff by infographics, so it's actually really easy to interpret. Um, unfortunately, there's more and more of these people now raising their head above the parapet. So it's become quite a competitive market. Some people are making a living out of it. So we've had to see this. We've seen people transcend now into this um, competitive journalism almost. So this clickbait, tabloid headline type um, 
society where people have to say something shocking, even if it's wrong effectively, to get people to read it. Um, then they're relying on the people having the time, the sense and the understanding to dig deeper into that article and then get the truth out of it. Um, yeah. And, and you know, we, we all live in a world where people are after followers and they're after downloads and they're after retweets and um, that's what generates popularity and then attention. So sometimes, and I, I know people who've done this overtly, they have set their stall out to hit people with shock tactics and maybe not as, as evidence-based as they want to be until they've gathered enough of an audience to then give their true message at the end of it. So, so it's, an, it's an overt tactic with some people. I think it's covert and unknown with others. But we've become in the quest almost to create better evidence for people to understand. Maybe we need to rein it back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and of course, and to go on, we had another example this week that we that between ourselves we've been discussing, which was an article which was published. And I suppose to, to summarize it, they'd looked at uh, uh, the research between um, high volume training compared to low volume and high intensity. So high volume, low intensity compared to low volume, high intensity. And what they were looking at is a comparison to those two types of training. Um, which had the, the greatest impact on uh, mitochondrial changes or mitochondrial density in, in muscle tissue. And uh, just to explain this to people from non-science backgrounds, so mitochondria are structures in muscles, uh, muscle, uh, within muscle cells, muscle fibres, that um, are responsible for aerobic energy production. So it's quite important for endurance athletes, the number of mitochondria you have. And uh, in, in a nutshell, what it had shown is that um, either high-intensity or and low volume or high volume, low intensity, either one, they seem to have the same impact on mitochondrial changes. But the headline was endurance performance. So which one has the biggest benefit in endurance performance? And, and my initial comments were, well, we're actually looking at mitochondrial changes. We're not looking at endurance performance here. And that my, mitochondrial changes are just one aspect of endurance performance. And Again, this kind of clickbait thing of uh, everybody jumped, started commenting on it, then discussing which is the best training for them and whether they should be doing high intensity and low volume or high volume and lower intensity. And it just seemed to go off on a, a completely different tangent because the headline was, uh, you know, it's not actually what the, what the research was measuring. And I, I want to come to you on, uh, on, on this one, Ian, and just what your thought, thoughts were on that. Maybe you can explain it a little bit better because I know, you, you again, you read the study. But just to throw in there as well that um, with, the, the, with the way that endurance training is now, people are looking for a quick fix. So I think it's quite handy that that article is basically saying you can do a small amount of high-intensity training and get the same benefits as a high amount of low intensity training, a higher volume. So whether that's, again, is just that instant gratification, I only need to train for 20 minutes three times a week. You know, that's even more reason for people to jump onto that in particular. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Obviously, this um, originally started with um, the work of uh, what uh, someone that a lot of people will know of as sweat science, Alex Hutchinson. Um, and he'd written an article that was trying. So he, his main purpose is uh, generally to disseminate 
scientific research to a wider audience. But in this particular case, he was um, he was disseminating a sort of a, an argument between two uh, research groups, two groups of physiologists. One that sort of focused on um, their research on high volume work, and another group that did a lot around sort of high intensity training, hit training. Um, but I think you alluded to it here, and one of the sort of main limitations of this discussion for me was <clears throat> the the group that were doing research around HIT training. Um, they were much of their argument was around you know how much bang for your buck you get, so whether you could do a small amount of training and get sort of similar effects. But I think certainly for for me and for I think for a lot of our audience, what we really want to know is what's going to make us the best athlete. What's going to bring out improve our performance the most? Not what can I get performance improvement in by doing 15 minutes of exercise, um, or can I get similar benefits through doing hit training? And I think that was lost a bit in this article. I, I generally like the work of um, Alex Hutchinson. I think he translates knowledge very well, um, and it's one of my sort of broader points around this. Is I think is there's one or two people that I think do translate this knowledge quite well from research. But there's a lot of people that don't do a very good job. Um, but I think this, in this case, I think that message was lost. Was like one group was saying, you know, you can do 10 minutes of hit exercise and get something that's similar to what you get from doing a lot of high volume work. Um, and ultimately, most people's training will be a combination of the two as well. And I don't, I don't think that message came across that well. So um, it was interesting in that you've got these two camps that are arguing about a point that ultimately when we're translating that knowledge to the athlete, what you should be doing is a balance of both. So it's more of an academic argument. So it was probably better off just staying in the academic domain, I think, rather than one that had real use for the athletes and the coaches um, who, who are trying to translate research knowledge. I think, but I think in general, if you can be selective about sort of finding, uh, so, uh, Mike mentioned Jan Lamour, there's uh, Ross Tucker who does quite a good job of translating knowledge from sports science research into sort of practice, Alex Hutchinson, and focus on those guys. They tend to generally do quite a good job of translating knowledge. What I've got more of an issue with is a lot of the sound bites that you get over social media, but I think um, Runners World and uh, some of the print media as well do quite a bad job of translating knowledge in that. They like to have these little sound bites of they'll, they'll There'll just be a side column in the magazine that might just have 20 words that summarizes the finding from research. But I mean, it's a long time since I've um, read one as well. But I always used to like to try and find two places in the same magazine that would contradict itself. So they would give a soundbite from one piece of research somewhere in the magazine, and there'd be somewhere else, there'd be another one that would give another soundbite, and they would contradict each other. But I think what they're doing is they're looking more towards their audience and they're trying, it's a, the equivalent of clickbait in that it's just a soundbite that supports someone's pre-existing beliefs or biases. That then makes people think, oh, well, that reinforces what I believe. So that makes them feel good and therefore they like reading that magazine. But I think one of the best examples of this is um, the research around some of the tannins that you get in wine. People like, you know, you always get the headline that says, oh, red wine's good for you. But when you look at the research evidence, you'd need to be drinking sort of bathfuls of wine to get the amount of uh, the active ingredient to get the benefits that they're talking about. But people who like drinking wine just pick up on that soundbite 
and it supports their pre-existing belief or their behaviours. And I think we see the same thing in terms of some of the dissemination of um, research findings in sport and exercise, where people are just picking little bits of one small study to support what people want to hear. Um, and I don't think that's useful for the athlete. I think what we need is, you know, a, a better job of people taking an area of research and producing an article or disseminating that for the athlete and for the coach that can actually have useful information for people's practice. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'll go back to this. You mentioned both Alex and Ross there. I follow them both. And, and you know, and you're, you're exactly right that there are a few people who are translating that stuff from academic through to the kind of Joe blogs on the street. And they're both perfect examples of people doing brilliant jobs at that. You know, the, and you should definitely, uh, if people don't follow them, then they absolutely should. But um, this translation and use the word translation, how stuff is filtering down. So for me as a coach, just coaching the average guy on the street, down at the running club, wherever it may be. This is, there's two things here. It's the filtering down of stuff. So there's some research done somewhere, which will, which, you know, in regards to sports training or nutrition or hydration or whatever it may be, or psychology. And there's two things. How does that filter down? Does it filter down or does it just stay in the journals and it stays in, in academia, but it never makes it to me as the coach. And by the time it's made it to me, how is it translating when it gets to me? You know, has it become a Chinese whisper thing? If it ever reaches me, does it still exist in its original form? And it's this, I suppose, application of knowledge, isn't it? It's this application of knowledge that well, there's a research element, but here when you're at the coalface and you're coaching 20 people down at the swimming club or down at the running club, how are you using that information in an applied way with those people to make them faster? Because in a sense, that's our audience, isn't it? You know, the people that listen to this podcast, it's your average triathlete, ultra runner, you know, marathon runner, whatever. And what they want to know is, how does that work for me? How do I apply it into my training? You know, so, so Mike, coming to you first then, just some thoughts about, in terms of your field of, of strength and, um, and, and injury prevention and so on, that research... Um, does it filter down how it translates down? And do you feel across the, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, across the vocation in general, is it being translated down at grassroots level and are people getting the information they need to get? Yes, yes. It's, yes, it's slowly getting translated down. It could be better. Being the eternal optimist, let's hope that some academics are listening. And my message to those guys would be, Try to help people realize that some of the studies and research you do are based on hypothesis. So when we're talking about um, the um, mitochondrial study about the types of training, maybe just adding that little word in that it may improve endurance performance. Just stipulating to that everyday person that we've taken a theory and we've tested it and a theoretical answer is only theoretical. There's an easy way to change how you add in those words in. My message to the listener, to the everyday athlete and, and recreational guy or girl listening, is the question you guys always need to ask yourself whenever you see research in any form is, so what? That's the question that you should always be asking. So what? What does this mean for me? Not necessarily what's the conclusion or what's the findings, but so what? What, what can I do with it? And if you are someone who's trying to bridge the gap between the two, then your job is to answer the so what question for them. Certainly when I find a piece of research and I'm trying to translate it into something for myself to share on social media, 
I try to always finish it with the so what answer that what this, you know, I'll give you a little bit of info about the study, but the, the take home at the bottom is, so what does this mean to you? And it might mean nothing and it might mean something, but it is, it is getting out there more. I guess we've opened the floodgates, which is fantastic. Maybe we need to sh shut them a little bit or put some sort of filter into that floodgate to control what's coming out a bit more. Mm. And what about, can I ask as well, just curious with your, with, with uh, sports injury in general, I've had many friends in the past who are, who are physios, chartered physios, and they always used to say to me that they, 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 they always enjoyed working with sports people. Um, but generally, they never ended up working with sports people or not enough sports people because there just wasn't, there wasn't the market there really, you know, so they ended up working within the NHS and so on. But they always really wanted to work with sports people. That was always their passion, especially if they were runners or triathletes themselves. Where is that now, you know, with sports injury specialists and, you know, how has that evolved over the last over the last five, ten years? It's evolved. The industry's changed. People are realizing that you don't have to follow traditional career paths, mm -hmm. i.e. work in the NHS and then filter off after that at some point. Um, I think the rise of professions like sports therapy, sports rehab has allowed people to branch into specific sports. My, my business, sportsinjuryfix.com, that is purely based on that when you jump on it, you can search by someone who specializes in a specific sport. Hmm. That's, what, well, that's what we've set up the site to do. Um, so it's much, much better. It's finding that person. Again, the little bit of investigation and research that um, the athlete needs to do is what really is that expertise they're saying they've got. Yeah. You know, do they do they watch Soccer Sunday and they support Spurs and now they're a football expert? Or are they actually at the sort of cutting edge working every day in the call on the call face with footballers or whatever sport they're they're working in? But there are many more people following uh, non traditional paths and specializing in specific sports. And actually, there's a niche for it. You know, I branded myself as the endurance physio. I, I'm lucky enough now to be in a point that I can handpick the people I work with and I only see endurance athletes. Of, yeah. course, of, of course, I could still work with other people if I need to, but I don't want to anymore because I feel I've, I've niched myself into a specific market. Makes me more effective, I believe, with those people because I understand their needs a little bit better. And I've just got a bit more experience with those injury types. So um, you'll find the something physio in whatever sport you look at if you go out there now. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, people are people are. I think what's what hasn't changed is the common belief with many of the public that they need to go via their GP and they need to go via the NHS first. Yeah, yeah. you and know, and they're they're stuck in that system where they may see non-specialists. They'll see very good clinicians, but they're not specialists in particular sports. Yeah. Um, you know, we we've done research with Sports Injury Fix, and the number one thing that an athlete wants is someone who understands their sport. They're actually not looking for the most qualified or the most clinically supreme uh, clinician anymore. What they want is someone who goes, "Okay, I understand the demands and the needs of the sports that you do. Therefore, I know how I need to rehab you and how I need to work with you." Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's it's maybe looking for the right people in a different way is what needs to change. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I was just about to ask you this, whether it's a cultural thing, because we'll get people come into the store and they're training for an Ironman. They've entered Ironman UK or something like that. And they've been training for six months for it. And they've picked up this niggle or this injury and it's stopped them running. 
And they're people who happy to spend a lot of money on shoes and bikes and everything. They'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see if I've been a my GP and then I've got a two-month wait for a physio or something through the NHS. And uh, I'm thinking, what, what are you doing? You've got Ironman in four months. Why, why are you not just going seeing someone? And my initial reaction is just pay the 40 quid. You know, you're spending all this money on Ironman on your bike. But I've slowly become to realise, I don't think it is a matter of they just don't want to pay the 40 quid. Half the time you speak to them, they don't know who to go and see. You give them a recommendation, they go straight away. But I think it's definitely a cultural thing, like you say, as well, that that's yeah. just the process we go through. Again, if that's something you've experienced. Yeah, it is. And then the caveat to that is when you do see someone who's a non-specialist in your sport, then the answer that normally comes back is stop. Yeah. Don't don't do it. And that's what I've been taught. Don't, you know, oh, don't go and see a physio because you're going to be told you can't race. You're going to be told to stop. Mm-hmm. But actually, find the right therapist who understands your needs and they'll probably modify something. They'll probably tweak something for you. They'll they'll understand how to adapt your training program and get you to race day rather than categorically say, well, actually, I don't know how to treat that. So the answer is let's stop. Mm-hmm. And then actually, if you see someone who understands your sport and your um, needs the most, if they actually do say to you, yeah, you probably need to stop, then you probably do actually need to stop at that point. Yeah. But but um, that and again, I guess a lot of my success is because people end up with me because they've been down those other avenues. Mm. And I, I just pick up people who are at a, at a time and a point where they're ready to listen a bit more. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm very rarely the first person someone sees these days. I'm second, third, fourth sometimes. Yeah. So so they've been down those frustrating routes or the non-successful routes in, in inverted commas. Um, so all they're ready to do when they get to me is listen. That's yeah. that's that's and and do the right things. Yeah, yeah. And and coming to you, Ian, go back to that original question. So the question was this: this knowledge, if you like, that comes from the research. So we've got the research information. Does it filter down? By the time it's it's come all the way down to Joe Blogs on the street, has it been lost in translation? So I'm talking about, you know, your average guy. So you did Lakeland 100 a few weeks ago. Those people that are on the course, how are they getting access to that information? How are they applying it? Is it filtering down? And is it filtering down well? Is it translating well? I think from a uh, psychology perspective, probably the, the uh, I would say no. Um, overall, I think the mechanisms <laughs> are, uh, it's quite a negative start point, but um, I think the mechanisms that are in place to disseminate that knowledge um, that most people are seeing are probably uh, ineffective. So I think research is being used effectively within psychology, but it's primarily by applied sports psychologists who are working with athletes and coaches and uh, as part of the sort of athlete support network or team around an athlete, but that's not what most people experience in terms of you know, the, uh, the broader sort of athletic population is most people don't have access to a sports psychologist and are not working with sports psychologists. So unless they've got means through which they uh, are having knowledge translated via people, so it could be that they're following certain people on social media or reading particular blogs, but the danger there is some of those, there are variable quality. So some people, as we've said, might do a very good job of translating that knowledge, and therefore those athletes would be, the, the, the knowledge would be translated well. But I think for a lot of people, they're sort of picking up sound bites uh, from social media, by the print media, 
uh, and maybe that knowledge isn't being translated that well. I think people who are working as applied sport psychologists um, uh, will be keeping up to, uh, on, on the whole, will be keeping up to date with the latest research and translating that knowledge uh, into their practice. But that's maybe not what the majority of um, athletes, that's, that's how they're receiving that research. Uh, can I just ask you on this, because you're, you're talking about applied sports psychologists, how they use that information. Okay, so, so where I live in the Northwest, <clears throat> I don't see, I don't know of any applied sports psychologist that lives locally to me. So what I see on social media and things like that, when, if Mike is talking about uh, injury prevention and doing his videos on the best glute exercises to do and stuff like that, how many people are watching it because they're fascinated by it? Because this is our hobby and there's a lot of people have, you know, doing endurance sports as hobbies and they're fascinated by these topics. We have something on sports psychology and there's hundreds, if not thousands of people who are fascinated by that subject of sports psychology. You know, these are things that the people that I hang around with, the endurance athletes, they love this stuff. You know, they, they'll read into it. So my, my question is there is that what, why is there not an applied sports psychologist local to where I, I live? I can't tell you of anybody I know in the Northwest. I think that's uh, it's partly uh, an issue with the way in which the sort of discipline has, has developed uh, and within academia in that there isn't a lot of support in a lot of institutions for people to do applied work but there aren't also a lot of if you go through the uh, jobs pages you won't see many jobs for sports psychologists and the, you get a lot of we see a lot of students um, see a lot of postgraduate students who when you ask them what they want to do for a career they'll say I want to be a sport psychologist but then they, they slowly become to realize that actually the number of jobs as a sports psychologist are very limited um, and therefore they might take on an academic position and then do some applied work as part of that but they aren't really advertising themselves 100 percent um, as a sports psychologist because those the opportunity to do that uh, full-time and not really there but also once they find themselves in that academic position a lot of the pressures from within an institution are to be doing work that isn't related to applied work so in terms of your teaching delivery um, but also in terms of the research output depending on the institution you're at there'll be a balance between sort of teaching and research but there aren't that many institutions that are supportive of doing work and that's part of your contract so then when they find themselves pressured by these other things and the time for doing the applied work is also limited so there has to be a real sort of passion behind it to drive it to keep that going um, that maybe isn't supported so I think for those reasons um, it's hard to sort of find people um, who are marketing themselves as sports psychologists certainly not within specialists within certain areas uh, as you would see with physio um, and I think you see it to some degree in the sports in sports coaching as well I mean we've seen a change in um, endurance sport over recent years I think mainly through sort of online a lot of its online coaching for endurance sports but there are particular sports where and I think it's sort of a the norms within particular sports so if you if it's within golf or tennis then you would expect to pay for your sports coaching and if you want to be a sports a tennis coach or a golf coach that is a profession that you can go into uh, and there'll be jobs there if you want to do that within football even though it's the biggest sport um in in the country and in the world 
those jobs are much more difficult to get because they're, they're, they're very few and far between at the professional level. Most of the coaching that people want is that they expect it to be amateur. And, you know, when children, uh, when people, parents, children are being coached, they expect that to be done free of charge. And people are often parents who do that coaching. So I think we see um, similarities in terms of sports coaching, in terms of um, psychology as well, in terms of there are certain, I think it's the different disciplines. So physio people expect to pay for physio. Psychology people just pick up uh, bits of information from here and there, but it's not something that they see people paying for um, as part of their support at the amateur level, and maybe that's why the jobs are not there. And I suppose it's not to say the information is not getting through, because what you'll probably find is, you know, Mike's thing is sports injuries, but he'll know some psychology because he'll have read it yeah. and he'll be applying it with people that he knows. So I'm a coach, I'm not a psychologist, but I read sports psychology stuff and I apply it with people that I coach. So we're all applying it. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, we're all learning from it in some way and applying it in some ways, but maybe not. It's not the sports psychologists themselves who are doing it at the coalface kind of thing. I think that's a really good point because more and more of the research that's looking at sports coaching and sports physio and some of the other sort of disciplines shows that actually the ones who are the most effective practitioners are the ones who are actually taking on board that psychology research, but also are able to establish a strong working relationship and have those sort of interpersonal skills yeah. that, that is all coming and that's been driven from the psychology research um, yeah. so that's a really good point as well i mean that that cultural thing as well is it, it it's fascinating because it's um whilst it has been you know what 10 or 15 years since people started paying for online coaching in endurance sports i think that is itself is still raw and i you know, I still regularly see people who don't like the fact that coaches are charging for their services. You know, that, that good quality coaching should always be free. It, go down to the local running club, get the voluntary, you know, get the, uh, the guy who works there voluntarily. And uh, uh, people still don't agree with athletes having to pay for coaching. It's not seen as a, as a profession. You know, and we talk about the same with the physio people, it's just that cultural of, well, it's just free through the NHS and that's how it's always been. So I'm not going to go and see someone, even if it's going to stop me doing my Ironman in three months. I'd rather wait two months on the NHS, you know. And I don't know, I wonder if it goes back. I know, obviously, with, with, your, with your background, Ian, you will, will kind of understand more of this than I do. But that whole, if I look back at the, his, the history of sport, and how I can still remember when uh, UK Athletics was the three A's. It was the Amateur Athletics Association. I can still remember when UK Swimming was the Amateur Swimming Association. And historically, you know, if without getting too much into this, if you go back into the early 1900s, the upper classes, you're going to wonder where I'm going with this, but bear with me, boys, just bear with me. <laughs> back in the early 1900s when the upper classes were the only ones that could do sport. And they didn't allow the working classes to participate in sport. You're not um, saying remember this. Because, what's that? You're not saying that you remember the early 1900s. Don't remember that. No, no. We're going back to chariots of fire, aren't we? So it was an upper class thing. So you you, you had to be an amateur to compete. Yeah. And you weren't allowed to be paid. Hence the Amateur Athletics Association, Amateur Swimming Association, and so on. Yeah. And that's, of course, why I can also remember, I can remember Linford Christie racing 
And even when Linford Christie was racing, he couldn't win prize money. So he had to win a period. Yeah, I got appearance fees, but not prize money because it had to be amateur. And it, it's probably a lot longer ago than, than I remember. But of course, I remember union. So rugby, you know, there was a rugby league was a working class split because they weren't allowed to be paid to play rugby. And rugby union was still amateur. And then I, can't, I don't know what year it was, but I can still remember when rugby union decided to go professional. I'm sure all the players were getting paid already. But it, it's still in our lifetimes where it's been changing from that sport has to be amateur. I can remember people getting bans. In fell running, they still have that. It's the Boffra thing, isn't it? The FRA and Boffra are two separate organisations because I think Boffra, you could get prize money at their races originally and at FRA races, you couldn't. So it's still in our lifetime where sports have gone from amateur to professional. And I see people who are training for an Ironman and I think that still exists to some extent. So I'll give you some examples of people where if they get a bit too serious, how pe quickly people jump on them and say, it's your hobby, mate. It's not your job. Just calm down. And I also um, I think of so, these other examples. I, I can think of in the last couple of years where people from a fell running background have come to see us for coaching or testing and have clearly told us to keep it secret because it would be frowned upon because you have to be an amateur. So then if we look at how things have evolved in the last few years, uh, uh, you know, people um, are resistant to, to have to pay for coaching. Um, and even in events, you know, commercial events, they had a lot, of, you know, the last 15 years, 20 years of developing commercial events, they've had a lot of people complain about, we shouldn't be paying for this. It should be, you know, it's not a commercial thing. So there has been, that commercialization has been very, very recent. People didn't pay for coaching. They didn't really pay for events, didn't pay for any of it. And it's your hobby. It's not your career. You know, it's, it, it, and just you've got to almost like toe the line a little bit. And still in some sports, that still exists. So that surely would be quite a significant blocker to people going paying for sports psychologists and paying for their own strength and conditioning coach or their sports therapist. You know, and I'm fascinated with with that and whether I don't know what, you know, psychologist first, Ian, what your thoughts are on that, that whole culture of amateurism. No, I can certainly remember a, a lot of the things that you talked about. And I, I know, you know, I think of instances where people would win a toaster as a prize, you know, because they, they could be given goods, but they couldn't be uh, they couldn't earn money. And I think that is certainly part of it. And we're probably in a transition. We've talked about different groups of athletes in terms of. You know, I think the sort of at the sort of more participation end of things, people pay tend to pay a lot more for entry fees as well, but they expect a lot more back in return in terms of what they might get in their goodie bags and so on, t-shirts and medals and so on. Um, but they're probably people in that group might be more likely to also pay for coaching support, sports psychology support, or because um, it's they're coming out from a different perspective and they're not influenced by those sort of cultural factors. But I think the people that are sort of come through the club system and perhaps are more aware of them, they're influenced by those sort of um, cultural sort of the amateurism that you talked about from within sport. And they're people from that background are probably more reluctant to pay for um, some of the support that would be around them, which is interesting. Like when you mentioned in terms of, when people are buying if a triathlon maybe spending a lot on their bike or wetsuits mm -hmm. and a lot of the equipment um that they might be more prepared to pay for but um 
a lot of that might be it's something that they feel as though they've got to show for the investment uh, and maybe some disciplines can do a better job in terms of um, selling themselves in terms of what support they or what benefits could be there for athletes um, if they do engage with sports psychology support or you know they're working with um, strength and conditioning coaches and physiotherapists to develop their performance not just to get treatment for an injury but also to be giving them support sort of year-round in terms of enhancing their performance. Um, in the same way that when we've talked about strength work in the past and people will do strength and conditioning work when it gets them back from an injury, but then the minute they're back from injury, then they stop doing that work. Maybe that's what they should, you know, there's a similar thing in terms of the support that they would get from different disciplines and sports scientists and therapists in terms of benefiting not just using them when there's an issue that needs resolving, but to actually um, enhance their performance year-round. Yeah. And Mike, do you think maybe, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, with um, so people who, the average age group athlete, and whether historically this this focus on it's, it's all amateur and it's your hobby, do you, do you think that this influx of, I suppose, more professional support do, do you see this as, you know, any any kind of experiences yourself What you within your job? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the first thing is I need a psychologist after that intro from you. That was massive. <laughs> the longest <laughs> intro ever. <laughs> what a question. Um, I, think, I think what I always see with this is when you go back to the amateur days, the expectation from the coach or the therapist or anyone else involved was less because most of them were amateur. They were giving up their time for free to run clubs and to help and to to do things. You know, the number of number of guys, uh, my predecessors in the sports rehab world, who would have been carrying a magic sponge for for free to help out. So, the the interesting change that I've seen is people now coming into the sport, regardless of their age but of their experience in the sport, so more recently, are much happier and more prepared to treat things in a professional manner and pay for services because they realise that the people now offering these services are doing it as a profession. So these guys almost understand they've got a better appreciation of the price and the value of what they're paying for. It's much more transactional. Um Whereas people who've been involved in the sports like ourselves pre-transition, they're the ones who are struggling to see that. Well, actually, this would have been free back in the day, or I did this race when it was free. Now it's not. And they can't see the price and value concept of, well, actually, someone there's now a thousand people doing this race, not a hundred. That means there's a bigger team giving more time and more energy to organize this event. That has a financial cost implication. Or this guy now specializes in working with these guys. He now charges this price and they miss the value of it. Yeah. I, do you know this? Um, the word that you're saying about value there as well, how people, how people value things. I find that fascinating. Again, the whole psychology of that. Why something, why something has a certain amount of value. So what I'll say then is that someone might feel that going seeing a therapist for an hour and paying £40 is expensive. But if you have a call out at a weekend and someone comes and has a look at your boiler, you probably expect to pay £100. And it's almost that's just the given rate. And how people value things differently, you know. So uh, 
it's to to enter a 10k race where you get your medal and your t-shirt and blah 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 and all that kind of stuff if it's 25 pound that's extortionate and that's a rip-off i'll spend that in starbucks on a, on a latte and a scone do you know what i mean <laughs> so how people value different things and and how, how they and i yeah i just find the whole psychology of that fascinating really and that surely must be a historical thing if yeah. it had been free before then now it has people see it as less do you know what i'm trying to say yeah. i'm going to come to you ian because i'm not even sure what i'm talking about now i think it's a, a, a lot to do with um how things make people people act upon how it makes people feel mm-hmm. um as opposed to so i think we we like to think of ourselves as being very rational mm-hmm. but see when you look at what people do in terms of their behaviors quite often people's behaviors are not rational so it's postdoc it's after the fact that we're coming up with these sort of explanations for why we act in a certain way and we're rationalizing our behavior but really we're acting upon how we, how things make us feel so if we spend 200 pound on a new seat post and we just look at our bike and think wow that's yeah we can't walk past it without spending five minutes looking at that seat post again and it's making us feel really good and we put that you know we take that bike to the race and that makes us feel really proud and we think we're getting a benefit from it then that is what's driving our behavior it's how we anticipate feeling about it um and because of those cultural factors that people expect to get things for free when they have to pay for those services it makes them feel as though they've been i shouldn't have had to pay for that it's sort of so it's making them feel bad or if you go and see someone like mike said you anticipate going to see a physio and they're telling you that you can't do something that you enjoy doing then you're reluctant to go to that physio. So that is definitely a barrier to to that service. Um, so I think a lot of the time, so people will openly go to Starbucks and spend a lot of money on a coffee and a on a and a scone or scone, depending on where you're from. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they won't question that. But that that would probably buy them enough coffee at home to keep them in coffee for you know. <laughs> yeah. But they'd, and, and they wouldn't to be in a supermarket and they'd be thinking, well, I'm not buying that one because it's it's four pounds for a bag. But they'll pay four pounds instead. But so it's not a rational choice. It's yeah. making them feel. So they go to Starbucks and they have a conversation with someone and they enjoy it and they sit there and it's the whole uh, environment around it. And it's the same thing with the choices around sport. that People are making the decisions based on how something makes them feel um, and when something goes against what they think they should be paying for, it makes them feel as though they've been ripped off almost when they have to pay for something that they think should be should be coming free. Yeah. So maybe then, we'll, we, when we move away from this 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 history of this sport, has to be it's very amateur and it has to be a hobby, mm. and um, it's something that's done alongside your full time job. What we might see as we move down the years then and down the line is these services become more common and we could have a sports psychologist on every street corner, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not, we're not still on the street corner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, <laughs> we've tackled psychology, cultural yep. change, the history of sport. I don't know what, what, what left there is to do now before we uh, speak to our, our guest. Yeah, maybe nutrition should be next. Then. Yeah, let's talk about nutrition. Let's move off lattes and scones and move on to the topic of sports nutrition. Nice segue. <laughs> okay, so we're going to welcome our uh, our guest to the show now. And uh, our topic for this week's show is uh, sports nutrition. So I'd like to welcome Gareth Wallace. Gareth, welcome. 
Uh, hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Are you well? Is, is it sunny where you are? We always have this thing with the weather whenever we speak to each other. Is it okay where you are? It's a bit overcast, but it's not raining. So okay, we'll we'll take that. That's great. Uh, Gareth, do you just want to just tell people who listen to the show a little bit about yourself and your background in relation to sports nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm currently a uh, senior lecturer in exercise, metabolism and nutrition at the University of Birmingham. Um, and been here for about eight years, um, primarily uh, teaching and researching in, in the sports nutrition area. Um, I've got a fairly long history in sports nutrition, did a PhD in, in the area, primarily focused on uh, optimizing uh, carbohydrate uh, blends to increase energy delivery during endurance exercise. So lots of work on things like glucose fructose combinations, uh, things that, that many people will have will have heard of that have found their way into uh, various uh, products that are available. Um, and, uh, and after the PhD, I actually uh, spent some time working in the food and drink industry for uh, LucasAid, predominantly on LucasAid Sport, which, uh, of course, is a big sports drink in the UK. Um, and, uh, and that role was mainly uh, around trying to develop sort of the next uh, generation of sports nutrition drinks and, and products. So kept along with, the, the, I guess, the interest area of uh, of sports nutrition and, and endurance um, and uh, yeah then I decided to uh, to come back to the academic world so as I say back in in Birmingham uh, for, for about eight years and uh, my work here has uh, is very much continued on the um, you know predominantly in the the carbohydrate uh, and endurance area so that's definitely the the main area of interest for me although I have uh, worked through collaborations uh, with other colleagues in uh, aspects of, uh, of protein nutrition and, 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 and fat nutrition as well. So I kind of have a good overview of most most aspects of sports nutrition. Uh, so I can speak to most most things, I think. Fantastic. Well, we've got a lot of questions for you. Okay. <laughs> so we've got a whole host of questions. We've got the questions of the very applied ones. So basically, Joe Bloggs there on the street running the marathon or doing the triathlon, how much this should be taken, and we, all of those kind of questions. But we also want to delve a little bit into um, uh, you know, Mike's speciality with the strength and condition and the rehab side of it and sports injuries, and also with Ian with the psychology side, how it links in as well. So I'm going to start by handing over to Mike um, and, and to, to cover that base first. So, uh, so Mike, over to you. Thanks, Mark. Hi, Gareth. Uh, hi, Mike. So... My my, I wanted to start off with a sort of like a statement, which is my my sort of findings and experiences with this, and then basically see if you could add to it and answer some more specific stuff to do with it. Yep. So in the injury world, the problem I always see is um, people when they're injured just misunderstanding some of the stuff. The big faults that I always see primarily is someone gets injured and their first thought is to start dieting, cut down what they're eating. Um, I'm not burning the calories, I'm not expending energy how I normally am, therefore the natural thing is to cut down what I'm eating. And they miss they miss that crucial thing that that metabolic cost of repair and healing and recovery is actually sometimes much more than, than at normal activities. And I've certainly read research over the years ranging from sort of 15 to about 50% extra 
in that metabolic rate to to heal. So I think anything you can share on that would be fantastic. Um, and then if there's nitty gritty things to do with things that they should be looking at doing um, and then things that perhaps they shouldn't. I sparked a, a really controversial debate last week online about post-activity uh, alcohol intake. <laughs> that, that that stirred a few few people uh, around the UK, but certainly the the things I think people are very aware of the negative impacts of things like smoking on healing. Yeah, but they're less aware on some of the nutritional things that may be either really really positive to healing or really negative. Yeah. So, so. Okay. Great. Yeah, they're all uh, yeah really good good questions. So I'll try and uh, add add something. I think the. The, the area of you know, how much food to eat or how much energy to consume is is quite a tricky one because the nature of the injury will probably dictate the degree to which um, you know your metabolic rate is elevated or not, um, and so that's quite quite hard to uh, to sort of predict. Um, I mean, the worst thing you can possibly do is undereat and and lose uh, body mass and, and muscle mass uh, in particularly because that will hamper. You know your recovery but it also means you haven't got sufficient energy just to fuel the actual in injury repair but i think it, it's very difficult to specify you know a certain amount to um you know eat in addition to your basal metabolic rate to support that kind of say injury related energy metabolism that that's not an easy thing to do um i mean i think the most sort of sensible thing to do is to to try and uh ensure that you're not overeating so there's no weight gain so you may have a slight surplus but you certainly don't want to be gaining kilos of, uh, of body mass because it will largely be fat mass uh, if you're not particularly active um, so avoiding overeating is key um, trying to stay roughly in, in energy balance um, and then ensuring probably that you have a reasonably high protein intake um, you know, that will help to support uh, the kind of maintenance of muscle um, and also tissue repair processes. Um, and that doesn't mean you need to, you know, suddenly go and start eating ridiculous amounts of, uh, of protein, um, but, but, but maybe a, a small additions to, to the normal diet, assuming you already have a, a balanced uh, diet. Um, so I think getting the energy intake correct and, and slightly increasing protein intake is is probably the most sort of sensible approach um when we start to think about you know are there other specific ingredients um and, and sort of magic potions that might might help um i think, I think the reality is and, and certainly you know the the evidence isn't that clear for for a lot of things is that um you know the actual um plausibility of many ingredients to affect tissue repair is quite high because you can always find a, a biochemical reason why something's going to work um, but but the reality of them actually working in humans and being demonstrated in a in a study is, is often quite rare um, so i think it's it's kind of the boring advice which is about sensible eating um, and uh, and you know finding uh, specific solutions uh, may not be the most sort of cost-effective way and, and that's my kind of take on things 
Yeah, perfect. And um, and I think I took from that the, the key thing as well is there's no point trying to add extra things on if your basic diet is just not where it should be. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. You need to get the, I mean, that's the fundamentals really. The, the basic diet has to be good in the first place. Um, uh, and, and if you get that right, you, you're kind of 80 to 90% there. Um, you know, there might be small gains from from little things, but but if the diet isn't right in the first place, it's it's difficult to imagine how doing something very advanced is going to compensate for for that. Yeah, and and any thoughts on the alcohol side of it? <laughs> yeah, um, this is what we all want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in in general, uh, th- there's no. <laughs> There's no major rationale for, for consuming alcohol to, to help with with recovery. So, you know, other than you know, drinking in moderation, if it helps you relax and relaxation is always, always good. Um, but um, if anything, part of the problem with drinking too much alcohol is that it's likely to impact on other aspects of your life, particularly with getting good quality macronutrient intakes that might actually then have uh, start to compromise tissue repair. So I think some of the bigger issues is probably the, the kind of indirect effects that you might get by impact on, on other aspects of, of, of your life. Um, I'm not that familiar with any, you know, direct effects of alcohol on tissue repair. That's probably stretching my uh, expertise a bit, but, but definitely from the energy balance perspective, uh, it's, it's not going to be, be helpful. No, I think I think Hollywood would make you believe that alcohol on open wounds is about the only positive effect. Um, and then finally, for me, it was more trying to keep things positive for the listeners, uh, more in a nutrition, in a injury prevention sort of way. Now, being boring and old, my advice to most people again is get a good fundamental basic diet first. Yeah. But I, I'm always faced with the usual stuff of glucosamine, uh, chondroitin, all of those sort of things which which i tend to bat off a lot of the time but but any thoughts on that side of it yeah i mean i'm i'm kind of in the same same place um the glucosamine chondroitin stuff i think has been flying around for for quite a long time and and the the kind of more recent i guess reviews on that area they're not really um standing up to the the test of clinical trials, uh, particularly, you know, with bone and joint function, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, so, so there's new, there's always new things that, that come along. Um, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of interest in um, things like uh, bioactive collagen peptides and, and tendon recovery and, and things like that and maintenance of uh, tendons. And, and I think whenever things like this come along, um, we have to be open-minded uh, and give them an opportunity to actually, you know, have some robust research generated to, to essentially put things to the, the test because you never know something may, may come through. And, and I think there's, there is interest in, as I say, the collagen area at, at the moment, uh, and we'll see over the next sort of few years if that might be something of, uh, of worth. But, but in general, um, yeah, it would be nice if there's some magic bullet that can help with protect prevention, but uh, but but actually just having uh, good nutrition in the first place um, 
And also when you are exercising, ensuring you're adequately fueled so that you avoid sort of silly injuries from lack of concentration and, and things like that is, is also something to think about. Yeah, that's fabulous, fabulous. That is it for me. Thank you very okay. much. Yeah, and the interesting com conversation with regards to the alcohol there. Um, yes, because Mike sparked an interesting debate on, on, on Twitter whether people should be uh, drinking after Ironman. I think he guess it started a drinking post-event. But uh, we, we did have a conversation earlier on, and Ian was saying that red wine does have benefits, but you have to drink it by the bathload, I believe was your term, Ian. <laughs> yep. So I'm going to hand over to Ian because I know Ian's got some questions with regards to sports psychology and that side of things as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hi, Gareth. Yeah, we, we were talking more broadly about um, the misinterpretation and the misapplication of, um, of research um, in the media quite mostly. So what I was saying was, you know, quite often people, you get headlines that present sound bites that make people hear, see what they want to see, basically, and support their pre-existing beliefs and biases yeah so, well, so, don't, don't, don't let the data get in the way of a good story that's right uh, that's exactly, exactly it. And, <laughs> yeah and the research you know you often see you, you we've all seen the headlines around red wine being good for you in terms, yeah, but yeah. when you look at the active ingredients you need a significant amount beyond what uh, you know there's going to be a lot of other harmful effects before you see anything better yeah, on yeah. The ingredients Potentially, yeah um, so yeah, that's what we were talking about. But um, yeah, it's more generally around the, the the misinterpretation of research. Yeah, in terms of sort of this sort of um, psychology and uh, nutrition nexus, um, I, I think it's probably worthwhile first because obviously we're interested in sort of ultra distance performance, yeah. ultra distance uh, endurance events. I just wondered if you could sort of give the audience a sort of reflect for the audience in terms of the. The research methods that are generally used in um, nutrition research and how applicable that might be in terms of ultra distance performance. So when we're talking about events that are beyond five, six hours in length, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's probably worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the kind of at least in the endurance uh, space, I guess the uh, most of the, the kind of classic literature. Um, is predominantly laboratory-based studies, you know, cyclergometry, treadmill running, and typically of relatively high exercise intensities. And by that, I mean uh, exercise that's likely to lead to fatigue in, you know, 90 minutes up to three, maybe four hours. Um, so, um, you know, where there's quite a big demand on the, the carbohydrate stores and, and depletion of carbs is likely the, the the major physiological reason for fatigue and um and and that's kind of continued throughout history really and you know and, and to this day i guess for, for various reasons and uh, not least the fact that exercising people over six hours in inside is <laughs> incredibly hard to to motivate people to do um so uh so i'd say we we know most of what uh I guess the physiology of endurance uh, based on these sort of laboratory studies that we'd probably call endurance rather than ultra endurance. Um, what we know about the ultra field is, you know, kind of best guesses in terms of how can we translate some of that lab work, but combined with some more case study type experiences from, from people who have reported on, you know, 
responses of, a, of an Ironman competition, for example. And so, so there is a, I guess there's emerging interest and in data from field-based studies where people are actually going out and measuring, you know, what uh, athletes are actually doing in the field. And I, and I think there's going to be much more of that, uh, you know, in the future. And, and where we'll get to is a point where we, we kind of mix the, the kind of lab science and the field-based work to actually come up with very clear, specific kind of practical science-based recommendations. But, but I think at the moment with the ultra field, it's, um, you know, what we know from the literature is we can probably use it as a guide um, and then sort of undoubtedly integrate that with the need to uh, consider the individual nature of some of these events, particularly the, the practical constraints uh, on um, the duration and then the types of food you can tolerate for that long. So there's probably a whole host of um, different factors that come into play that we don't know a huge amount about from a lab perspective, um, but we could probably gain a lot of information from from what people are experiencing and, and, and telling us and almost use, you know, our kind of best guess estimates as to, to guide things. But you always need to then think about how to individualise that for, for somebody. Uh, that's, that's really interesting to hear that's the direction things are taking because I think that reflects some of the psychology literature around ultra distance performance as well where you, it tends to be asking people to report on what they've experienced um, during events and then looking at differences between people who don't complete an event, people who hit their goals, don't hit their goals and uh, the psychological differences between people within those groups. So I think there's certainly and, and when you sort of looking at that sort of research you're always sort of balancing that against sort of some of the anecdotal reports as well and I think anecdotally and sort of from our experiences as athletes and also interactions with other athletes you quite often see in the ultra distance performance this sort of uh, potential link between nutritional uh, so your nutrition during an event and psychology in terms of mood state um, and quite often, for me, you often start to see a, uh, an overlap between when people start talking about their sort of gastrointestinal distress issues with actually being able to take on board nutrition and the period where they're experiencing low mood state, um, debilitative thoughts in terms of confidence levels, anxiety and stress mm -hmm. and thinking about it's no longer and sort of disengaging from their goals. So I was wondering what you might think might be whether you're sort of aware of potential mechanisms for that, um, but also in terms of what people can do to try and what might be the best things to do for an athlete to try and prevent experiencing gastrointestinal distress in ultra distance events. But if you do start to experience them, what might be some of the best things that they can try out to sort of reverse that? Yeah, no, it's. Um... Yeah, good, good questions. And the link between, I guess, the physiology and the psychology is, is clearly there. Which one drives the other? <laughs> I don't know, um, but, but and difficult to, to separate. But there's no doubt if, 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 the, if the gut isn't feeling good from a physiological perspective, you obviously experience that in, in the psychology. Um, I think in terms of, um, you know, the gastrointestinal distress area uh, which seems to be 
let's say one of the bigger um more practical considerations that that's coming up in the in the ultra endurance field um making sure that um you know you're adequately prepared is is critical and that might sound quite simple and, and boring but you know actually practicing strategies in training um to know what works for you uh, in in certain situations um in equally um trying to find training situations that might then mimic the actual race conditions uh, whether that be environmental um you know so that you're then practicing your nutritional strategies in as near race like like conditions um it's always difficult to mimic it fully and i think you know there's always an extra level of anxiety and stress around an actual event and that might compound some of the the, the issues um but uh, but getting that practice in and that's experimenting with types of foods quantities volumes knowing what's going to be available on courses to to actually be prepared um knowing if something isn't going to be available what are you going to do and, and almost having that you know having the plan there will of course alleviate the potential for any like stress um but also having backup plans if things things don't don't quite quite turn out and knowing that it's not going to be the end of the world if if something hasn't uh, you thought there was going to be something there and there, and there wasn't um so kind of being prepared for when things might might go wrong um but um i guess you know from the kind of more practical perspective um the gi distress is often linked with um excessive consumption of the wrong types of foods so uh, things like that are very rich in protein or fat or fiber very difficult to, to process in in the stomach and the intestine so they're going to be linked to higher likelihood of uh, GI distress so finding um, you know, typically carbohydrate rich foods that are easily digestible is, is one way to uh, to ensure that that's that you minimize the risk uh, as long as your body is used to to taking them um trying to stay hydrated uh, so not over drinking because having too much fluid in the system is going to be sloshing around and that's not not comfortable but equally being dehydrated is going to be a problem for trying to absorb nutrients um, and so that's likely to make things things bad um, so and, and we'll probably come on to like what how much should i be drinking at, at some point um, but but having the the adequate level of hydration is is important um, i think um Coming back to the question of if something develops, uh, what do you do? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, there is some some evidence that um, the GI distress tends to develop as time progresses. So actually, if you try and consume as much food as you can early on, then that might help to mitigate um, things. Um, but if, if something does develop, um, coming back to like what's the often the main causes which is really about the ability to digest and absorb foods uh, and that's often limited when you're exercising because the body's trying to direct blood to the muscles as well as the, the gut so actually slowing down is likely to be quite helpful just to allow a bit of blood flow back to the the gut to uh, help with the absorption uh, 
giving the gut a bit of a break from from heavy feeding. Uh, so maybe going just to small amounts of fluid, you know, maybe with carbohydrates in the fluid, but but just trying to give it a rest for a bit, um, which may compromise performance for a short period, but in the long term, you know, hopefully that will help to, to recover. But but there's no clear like data on what you should do. So this is all just thinking like practically uh, about what what's the physiology and what might you do to uh, to help alleviate that. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Gareth. And the other area, um, quite fairly recent research, and some of it, as you, uh, uh, I'm sure you'll explain, was conducted here at Birmingham. But some of the another area of nutrition that's, I think, sort of shows a direct link with sort of mood and um, thought is um, sort of the mouth swell research. So the research that suggested that um, when you take a drink on board, you can get very quick responses to in terms of performance, but also in terms of mood state and sensing it. And the term mouth swill comes from people actually swilling a sports drink in the mouth and then spitting it out, but still seeing some effects on performance. Um, so I was wondering if you could reflect on where that is um, in terms of that research at the moment and your take on it. But also, even if you're in a um, ultra endurance event and you're towards the end, is it possible that you might get some performance benefit even if you stomach's kind of shut down if you take something if you swill something in the mouth but also um whether you're aware of any research that's looked at those sort of mood effects as well um on that and whether that's a potential mechanism that's been looked at yeah i mean i guess it's good 10 10 or 12 years ago now that the first data on this concept of mouth rinsing uh, came out and um of course, it kind of changed how people think about uh, the role of carbohydrates uh, beyond just giving you some energy. Um, I mean, my, my, my take on it is, it is that I mean, most of the evidence for that has been generated under conditions where there are uh, where the exercise intensity is quite high and the duration is usually around about an hour of working really as hard as you can. Um, and in those situations, the, the fatigue process is, is unlikely to be related to like running out of carbohydrates. Uh, whereas in the ultra distance, there's more of a chance that you're going to have quite low carbohydrates. Um, so you're in a, a potentially a low glycogen state. There is some evidence that suggests that mouth rinsing can, can kind of still uh, rescue some of the performance in a low glycogen state um, but it certainly doesn't recapture everything that you kind of had when you've got full energy stores the effects aren't aren't huge uh, so i mean it might be you know not what everybody wants to to hear but you know i, I think if you're going to rinse then rinse but drink it as well <laughs> you know why, why spit it out I mean, unless you're experiencing lots of gi distress as well but but there does you know there's, there's clear evidence that if you um if you uh put even non-sweet carbohydrates into the mouth you can see different regions of the brain activate uh, using imaging uh, technologies which you know are putatively related to reward and motivation so you can build a nice mechanistic story there um as we can with a lot of a lot of things but in practice um 
you know, if there is an effect, I, I think it's quite small. Um, and, and I wouldn't be, you know, solely relying on that as my, my way to, to get through. Because at the end of the day, you know, you need the end, you need energy. Uh, but, yeah. you know, others may have a, a different take on that. But, but I think it's very interesting science. Um, and, um, you know, there's probably some potential there, but I wouldn't do it at the compromise of, uh, of actually getting some, some energy into the body. Yeah, I think that was the area as well, generally. Uh, more of an emergency strategy if you are experiencing GI distress. There might be some uh, benefit performance, but obviously um, it's not in replacement to trying to maintain your glucose. Yeah, you can. and equally, um, people are now talking about um, how bitter tastes may have a similar effect as say a carbohydrate mouth rinse some suggest that swilling a caffeinated beverage may may do something and the interesting thing about caffeine it's maybe more likely to be a, a effective is because you can get considerable um, caffeine absorption from, from the mouth so a caffeine gel and things yeah. like that chewing gum yeah yeah sorry caffeine chewing gum sorry yeah. that, that sort of thing and we know that then caffeine you know, has a really potent effect on many aspects of, of psychological function, um, which then will uh, potentially uh, improve the, the physiological aspects uh, or the, the function, anything. Now, I think uh, it's probably worth pointing out that the, uh, the, the mouth swill or rinse is probably more a methodological thing just to demonstrate that it's not actually being ingested. So that's not the mechanism to, that it's working through. So you don't necessarily have to do that in the yeah, no, absolutely. It's recognizing that there might be a very short term effect, you know, something that happens much more quickly than would require digestion of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the origin of the studies um, really came from the fact that an observation was made that carbohydrate feeding improved performance in a condition where you wouldn't expect it to because there's not enough getting in in the time to actually, you know, have a benefit. So that was where it was like, well, maybe there's something upstream from the body that's actually uh, you know, causing this. And, and that's where the, the mouth came in. Uh, so it was very much a, a mechanistic approach. But of course, there's an obvious practical application there. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily always mean that's the, the best practical application. Uh, Oh, thanks for that. Um, that's that's really uh, useful. Um, I think that's that's more or less it from me. So I'll pass back over to Mark. Thanks, Gareth. Okay. My um, I suppose my take on this, Gareth, my, I'm from a coaching perspective. I'm working with people on, on everyday basis and just telling them what they need to be taking or advising them what they should be taking and what they should be doing when they're doing an Ironman or a marathon. So I'm just really interested in that real applied side. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, so I. I'm interested in the basics in terms of, you know, well, how much carbohydrate, how much water, how much salt, those kind of things. Yeah. But before we get on to that, I, I'm just curious on your your overview of the thoughts in 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 triathlon and, and ultra running in particular at the moment. Um, and I would argue that it's in those sports because the people that do those sports are quite techy and they like different things. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I wouldn't say gimmicky, but they're interested in all that kind of, you know, all the technology and all the all the different things. There's a real trend to looking at high fat, low carb diets. 
Yeah. So people try, go, trying to go into every day, look on Facebook and someone else is starting ketosis. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's a real trend in ultra running and triathlon at the moment. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this in terms of changing the diet to optimize fat metabolism, because obviously that will then save carbohydrates or save glycogen. And they yeah. should, in theory, then be able to race for longer. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose potentially have less uh, stomach problems if you want to look at it that way as well. But what's your thoughts on that, the performance side of it? High fat yeah. versus high carb? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean I'm mean, i obviously well aware of the, uh, the anecdotal um, kind of push uh, for, for ketogenic diets and, and things. And uh, it seems like this has turned into a a kind of diet wars sort of debate where you're either high fat or you're either high carb. Um, and, and I don't know if either are necessarily right. Um, you're probably somewhere uh, in the middle most of the time or, or having more carbs at certain times, more fat at certain times. But I think if you took the extreme version of, you know, so the ketogenic diet, very low carbohydrate, um, there isn't a huge amount of evidence uh, for performance benefits of that uh, type of diet over and above, say, your kind of standard carbohydrate-based endurance sort of diet. Um, there's huge metabolic effects. So, yeah, this high fat oxidation is, is very clear, um, happens quite quickly um, upon changing the diet. Um, and, and usually there's a short term impairment of performance while you're kind of adapting to that. But after a few weeks, you can kind of regain what we might say the capacity to perform you know, low to moderate intensity exercise, which which, of course, in the ultra uh, endurance area may well be the types of exercise intensities that a lot of people are kind of working at. Um, but the actual added value to that is is not clear um and and i think that the practical difficulty in achieving it you know is probably you know not matched by the the added value that you, you might be able to get from that in my in my opinion anyway um and uh i think if the the effects are also dependent on um the level of the athlete so if you're actually quite high level athlete or even a you know pretty competitive sort of sub elite uh, athlete the, the predominance of carbohydrate as a substrate is probably still quite high even in in you know exercise bouts of 8 9 hours uh, so you know you're good ironman triathlon um, it's quite carbohydrate dependent um, and so sticking with sort of what we might say are you know, traditional carbohydrate-based approaches, um, but but they're evolving as well to be a bit more periodized. Um, is, is probably still the the best way. That if you're a fairly low-level athlete that's uh, expending, you know, not super high levels of energy in terms of a rate of energy expenditure, to the point that most of that energy expenditure could be accounted for by fat metabolism. Well. Being on a, a high fat based diet could well support that, but those types of, of athletes, you know, aren't going to be at the competitive end, and it may be more about getting around 
Uh, and in that instance, there may be value in it, but whether there's any value in that above carbohydrates is, is unclear. But I do think as you go up the competitive level, that the, the, the importance of the carbohydrates comes through. And having said that, you will always get, you know, the elite person who is doing something and, and those types of people could probably be doing anything <laughs> as long as they're training hard. Um, you know, there are reasons why some people are elite and, it, and it's not all about what they're eating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we, we talk a lot about in the podcast about the kind of, psychology and the culture if you like of, of people in the, in the in the sports world and I do think one of the things in the UK with this this diet culture this all or nothing yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. we've gone how many years I can remember so when you know when I was a child and my mum and it's it's either diet or not diet and then they have one bad day when they're on a diet and then suddenly the whole diet's ruined if yeah, you've had yeah. six good days and one bad day and that all or nothing culture I almost see that in this as well with it's it's all carb or it's no carb, and you yeah, think oh, no, it's sliding scale here, guys. You know, you can you can fit somewhere in the middle, yeah. but it, you know, it's it's like it's always all all or nothing, and it's that, or it's the extreme polar opposite. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree, and and in some respects, that's also reflected in some of the discussions in the, the scientific community as well. Um, yeah. And uh, in reality, you know, it's it, it's never really just, and and even the people who think they're extreme whether it's really high carb or really high fat if you actually look at what they're eating it's it's never as extreme as it uh, as it seems yeah 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 I, I must I, I do see that a lot as well with people saying I've gone on a low carb diet and it's made a dramatic change and I said what have you cut out well I've cut out chocolate and I've cut out cake and I've cut out and then before all they're actually doing is cutting out the bad foods and you realize yeah, yeah, that the first yeah. time ever they're eating healthily you know Probably but they're, seeing as they're tagging it as low carb yeah, you know? but um, what that um, Mike obviously was talking earlier on about kind of um, uh, injury wise and and uh, recovery rates, and I'm just curious as well, what's the evidence for a read about people saying with high carbohydrate diets, there's there's more chance of uh, inflammatory response after exercise. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm not. Uh, I said so. There are. Um, I think what often gets confused in this um, kind of literature and in this space is the uh, the kind of health aspects. Uh, so the role of different types of diets in in health and also how they're affecting people who are quite active and, and you know very highly active. Um, and uh, yeah, if you have lots of highly refined sugars in the diet. Um, and you're very inactive, that can be linked to, to things like inflammation. Um, but, you know, my view is that if, if you're reasonably active, um, actually a lot of the things that you're eating don't have the same impact because of the, you know, the very nature of the exercise itself um, can be can be protective. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's difficult to... Um, you know, always give a very precise answer. And I'm not sure there's that much literature directly comparing it, but it, it would be surprising um, to to actually think that, you know, something, for example, like, you know, carbohydrates after exercise, which are very well known to stimulate recovery, would be augmenting um, 
you know, a, an inflammatory uh, process. Um, you know, that doesn't doesn't make make sense. But you know, yes. I don't know where the, the the claims are coming from to be able to, to to comment specifically. Yeah, yeah. So if we're talking to the average Joe, so they've entered an Ironman triathlon or an ultra race or so on, just the basic questions then. How much carbohydrate per hour should they be taking? So the common things that, that I see is the standard 60 grams an hour, and then that changed to 80 grams an hour when you did a glucose fructose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, again, I think it's dependent on the um, the level of the the athlete um, and, and um, you know, the uh, how much they're pushing it. Um, I would always start with, um, if it's your first time in something, you know, the, the general guidelines around so the 30 to 60 grams per hour of, of carbohydrate, I, I think, you know, will actually uh, work for uh, most people. Um, I think you, if you, if you are going to be able to push it at an intensity that is really demanding from a carbohydrate perspective, then there's scope to try and increase the intake. And, and, and it seems that, yeah, you could be going up to 80 to 100 grams per hour as long as you're uh, combining different types of sugars that, that can be absorbed properly. So the, these glucose and fructose mixtures that they're often talked about is because they can be absorbed by different mechanisms uh, in, in, the, in the intestine. Um, but I would certainly say that um, they're quite aggressive intakes and, and you can't just suddenly start doing that you know you really have to build up to that in uh, in in training um and um so it's kind of a risk-based approach i think you know tr start with small and then uh, if you can tolerate more but one thing that is often overlooked is when we talk about this 30 to 60 grams it's it, we often say you know of of, of things like glucose or glucose polymers and maltodextrin and and the evidence suggests actually if you're having 30 to 60 grams you, you could also have a, a glucose fructose based drink and it will still provide you this similar amount of energy and I think one of the benefits of that is or a drink or a gel is that should you for whatever reason suddenly have more carbohydrate than you intended you've actually got more scope in terms of reabsorption uh, that, than you would have if it was just a glucose-based carbohydrate. So, so I think looking for those sort of mixtures anyway is not a bad thing as long as you are tolerant to, to things like fructose. And there are some people who, you know, don't like to have uh, fructose um, and, and you, you, you notice that very quickly if you're one of those people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so in that kind of 30 to 60, if you're, a, you know, if you're building up, if you're a novice and then for more experienced people, potentially 60 to 80 and mixing those sugars. And then what about actual fluids? So in terms of hydration, how much uh, fluid should people be taking on board? Yeah. Um, now, that's probably the most um, variable uh, response that I'm going to give uh, because in, in very broad brush terms, you know, if you have no knowledge whatsoever of, of, of what you might need to take, um, you know, we might say, well, trying to consume anything from 
400 mils to 800 mils an hour um, is probably going to meet what you need. But of course, for some people, that's going to be too much and some people's going to be too little. And when you actually look at what people do take, it, it's often, uh, you know, on a good day around half a litre an hour, depending on the types of studies you're, you're looking at. Um, so it can be quite variable. I mean, the best thing to do is to, to try and estimate for yourself what what you think you need and, and the way to do that is to to look at historically what how much have you been drinking what sort of body weight uh, are you losing over a period of, of competition um, and then trying to work out well, how much fluid would I need to um, not necessarily maintain my body weight perfectly that's not you don't need to do that but just really minimize substantial losses so we're talking you know going beyond three four percent of a body mass loss um which which does happen you know it's quite common but the physiology in terms of the function does start to to deteriorate a bit when you're losing too much body body water so so if you were to weigh yourself kind of before and after a race you know every every kilo of uh, body mass losses roughly equates to about a liter of of fluid that you've you've lost um and then you can work out okay well i would have needed this much fluid to actually maintain my um, my my hydration status um, you don't want to over drink because you'll obviously gain weight and that is is not necessarily functional weight um but again you don't want to be losing too much um so it's really about experience and and, and trial and error uh based on the physiology but also on your tolerance um, but i think that if, if you're at risk of under drinking then you know you, you can practice uh, to, to try and develop a, a kind of tolerance of, of, of the fluid intake yeah you know we were on a previous podcast we had this conversation now 20 years ago um people started drinking too much and probably largely influenced by you know take the volvic challenge Yes. Uh, all water supplies are available and uh, because by drinking lots of water you would flush toxins out of your system and using these yes. toxins in inverted commas and people over drinking in the hypernatremia yeah. and then Oaks wrote the book waterlogged so everybody stopped drinking because yeah. <laughs> I don't need to drink anything now yeah. and it seems that people are coming back on this we're getting back to where we were 25 30 years ago where people when they're thirsty drink and probably drink the right amount you know it seems to have gone a full circle you're right, and and the current I guess phrase is this sort of drink to thirst is the uh, the commonly uh, used term at the moment, and um, and I certainly think that has some value if if you're accustomed to uh, knowing the sensations for yourself of when you need to drink. Um, many people aren't and and may not uh, take an adequate amount when when they need it. Um, so I think it's something that um if there's fluid available freely within a race and you are uh, able to drink to thirst and know that that will keep you adequately adequately hydrated then absolutely uh, if there's no fluid available or if there's limited options of course you've got to be a bit more prescribed in in your strategy and you can do your research before you go into those things but but there are there will be people particularly novices who who may have to be a bit more organised and, and actually um, 
you know, try and meet a specific uh, strategy because the sensations to to drive the thirst may not be as uh, as well developed as as more uh, you know seasoned athletes. Yeah, yeah. And then, so in terms of the uh, the fluid intake, when I if with people that I'm coaching and we talk through nutrition, I just try and break it down really simple into um, carbohydrate, uh, water, and salt. You know those three things. Yeah. What yeah. I find is. Um, I actually own a, a running store and we stock lots of nutritional products. The one thing I find that they lack the most is the, 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 the salts, the sodium or the electrolytes. So a lot of the carbohydrate drinks or gels, very few of them tend to have sufficient, from what I've read, sufficient electrolytes or salts in there. So yeah. just a question on this first. Well, I've got two questions, really. Um, my, um, my advice to most people is that the, the sodium is the key one. Yeah. So, you know, how much sodium they need to take and what, you, so on average July day, if you're doing a triathlon or a, a marathon, average amount of sodium that people should be taking. But also, am I right in saying that? Because other people push that, oh, you need to look at all of the electrolytes, not just sodium. Yeah. And just what your view is on that? Yeah, I'll start with the, the second part first. The, there's, there's no evidence for any other electrolyte beyond um, sodium in terms of a benefit for uh, for hydration there's, there's no let's say clear evidence um, so I think I think you're right in in what you're currently saying to people um, sodium is often um, low in some um, some nutritional products particularly beverages because the, uh, the palatability can can change quite a bit um, and uh, you know it uh, when you're trying to pass the taste test in a in a factory or something, you don't want it to not not taste good. But of course, they're rarely tested under conditions of of exercise where maybe your taste changes and actually maybe you do want some more more salt. Uh, but it's probably more the mainstream products that you'd find in your um, your Tesco garages or, or other garages that that uh, that maybe wouldn't have as you know really high levels of, of, of salt because they're trying to hit a a different market as, as well um, but in terms of how much it's actually it's a good question and, and th there has been a recent um, review on uh, ultra endurance nutrition actually which has been quite it's quite helpful uh, and they do talk about whether there's a specific need for some salt supplementation uh, in, in ultra events and the, the conclusion really is that Actually, if, if you're having a, a good mix of um, sports nutrition products, but also real foods, uh, you know, things like pretzels, etc., there should actually be sufficient salt within those foods that you wouldn't need specific salt recommendations. Um, and, and I think that's that's probably the best sort of practical uh, message is, you know, avoid solely having water or very dilute carbohydrate electrolyte drinks because yeah you're likely to uh, run the risk of low sodium levels um, but actually if you're exercising for that long it's likely that you're going to be having a good balance of, of different types of, of foods and, and drinks and and they particularly when you're having a uh, kind of real foods um you should be getting enough salt, uh, at least for during the exercise itself. And, and and that's even if you're, you know, people talk about salty sweaters and, and things like that. You shouldn't be using the, 
the presence of some salt on your forehead as the, the marker of whether you need some or not. Um, you know, I think, again, it's sticking to kind of a sensible nutritional plan that has a mix of different types of, of nutrition that should actually be, be sufficient. Yeah. Have you got, so with, with people racing maybe marathons or Ironman stuff, they might not take those mix. I think in ultras, it's like a, a walking buffet sometimes. So they will get all those mixes. Yeah, they'll, they'll get the races, yeah. They may just be taking literally energy drinks and water or gels and that's it. Is, is there an optimal amount in terms of sodium or is it, is it just still very? I can, I can tell you that um, there's probably a, a sort of minimal amount that, that you want to be sure you're getting. Um, I have to do a quick uh, quick calculation uh, here on my uh, my, my calculator. Uh, so why, why are you doing that? I, I, I thing is, I still remember, and and uh, see Mike's a bit younger than me. Ian's not far off, so Ian might remember this. But I I I can still remember when salt tablets were quite common, and they disappeared because of blood pressure scares, and you couldn't find <laughs> them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're still seeing the after effects of that, that people associate that taking salt with blood pressure problems. And, you know, I remember not being able to buy salt tablets from the chemist because they weren't being sold for that, that reason. Yeah. And I was watching a video on YouTube uh, recently, uh, Lionel Sanders, who's one of the top Ironman competitors in the world, and he lives in Canada. And he was talking about a specific Gatorade drink, which had a certain amount of sodium in, and they legally can't sell it in Canada. Oh, because it's got too much in it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Well, I mean, when when we think about and sports drinks are probably the easiest way to think about this. Um, if you think about a sports drink that you might typically make up to five hundred milliliters, uh, and you might have a couple of those an hour to meet your sort of say sixty grams an hour of, of carbohydrates, you get about a liter of fluid. Um, within that, you're getting usually typically about half a gram of, of sodium. Um, and, and that's the amount in those types of drinks is is kind of uh, developed through uh, from the scientific literature to say this is what a sports drink needs to contain to be able to be called a carbohydrate electrolyte drink. Um, yeah. and, and, and they often are at the minimum side because when you start going higher, the taste changes. Um, but, but the efficacy is there. Uh, um, so it would be about the equivalent of about 50 milligrams per 100 mils, but that comes out to be about half a gram an hour if you actually yeah. kind of scale that up. And and I don't think that would be un, unreasonable in terms of, you know, finding that from, from a variety of sources. Uh, yeah. But, uh, um, I feel quite reassured, to be honest. So I would I advise people, depending on whether they're bigger or smaller or they tend to sweat a lot or don't, between four and 600 milligrams an hour. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this would be about five hundred. So yeah, that's, uh, bang in the middle. There you go. We're on, <laughs> we're on the same page. <laughs> Not enough people emailing me going, "You told me." <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we, uh, we we're right there then. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like we planned it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Well, that's that's all my questions answered. That's yeah. you know, that it, you know reassures me the basic advice we can give to people when the when the competing events and what they should be aiming for, but. I'm going to come back to, uh, to to Mike and Ian if you've got any additional questions. But Mike, have you got anything there to finish off? I just had one that popped into my mind when you two chatting earlier. So one trend that I've started noticing a lot in endurance athletes is to try and piggyback on this concept of uh, fat oxidization and switch into that fat metabolism. They're sort of using uh, intermittent fasting as a strategy pre-training to try and access that. 
yeah. Would love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, in principle, um, and it's, it's maybe not just about intermittent sort of fasting, but um, there's a huge interest in trying to develop strategies to increase fat oxidation and and whether intermittent fasting can do that for the athlete i'm not aware of any clear evidence on it but but if it could then you know then great because people are interested in that that sort of principle um one of the things to be i guess aware of is when you're trying to increase fat oxidation you really don't want it to then affect your ability to use carbohydrates when when you need it. Um, and and one of the, the problems, at least with the going on to sort of high fat diets, is is that you often impair that ability to use the carbs when you need them. And um, and so with any of these new strategies that people might come up with, I think you always have to think about you know with with one action there may be some other consequence um and and so i would i mean i'm not aware of any literature in the athletic fraternity on the intermittent fasting for a performance outcome um of course from a a strategy for weight management then yeah that could be effective and but the benefits for that are really through changing body weight um but uh, but if there is fat oxidation benefits then it would be important to ensure that there isn't isn't a compromise on on the other side of the, the metabolic uh, equation yeah perfect can i just say to just a, what my subjective experience with the people that have gone on the high fat diets we do tend to find that they their endurance improves they can go for longer but it suits those people that are going very slow for longer. They're very, very, they become very diesel engine orientated. Yeah. In yeah. 100 miles and averaging 15 minute miles. But when you want them to do, even as you come towards an event like an Ironman, if they want to do a faster race, yeah. they struggle to pick up the pace. And that's my, I know there are outliers and people will argue against it, but that's my subjective experience. Yeah. What, basically what you just said there, isn't it? I think the science would probably support that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Ian, coming to you. Yeah, just want again something else that sort of came to mind uh, in your discussions there with uh, with Mark um, uh, in terms of the keto diet, but more in terms of keto drinks. So I've heard uh, one or two of the proteins at the Tour de France this year was sort of playing around with a keto drink, and I've seen articles in magazines about the development of keto drinks, which apparently don't taste very nice. But um, I wonder if there's any evidence for sort of any performance benefit there or is that sort of pseudoscience that they may be just um saying that they're using these drinks it, it, it's a really interesting area um and and yeah it seems to be that you know professional sports people are engaging in in the use um they, they're quite expensive i think certain types of these uh, drinks and so it's probably somewhat limited to those people who can uh, can can afford them um I think it's important to say first that there are lots of different types of, of ketones, uh, these ketone drinks. Um, and there are studies that support the performance benefit um, for certain types and then other types, they don't. Um, and uh, so, so you have to kind of take that into account so that you're not buying the one that maybe hasn't got any, any evidence. Um, but even the studies that are supportive so that the kind of ketone monoesters that uh, 
seem to be the ones that you know the pro cyclists would be having you know they're it's very clear they're having profound effects on uh, metabolism which is really for a kind of geeky scientist like me is very very interesting um the um the actual performance benefits i'd say have been uh, inconsistent even in the kind of best case scenarios uh so there's some evidence but it's not always repeatable um and and isn't always verified by by different groups uh so you know it's this isn't me saying it's it's not worth it um but it's certainly saying i think we need to kind of pause and see where the literature is going to develop and the science is going to develop um before being really clear on which which ketones work in which conditions um and, and for which types of people um because it's it's just too early to be be absolutely clear on it um and uh and yeah there are some taste issues potential gi distress issues with certain types uh, and and there's also a cost implication so um you know i think it's a watch this space um but you know we've we've known about you know the process of, of ketosis for, for many many years um and so you know quite every now and again things come along and there's a, a couple of years of buzz and then they sort of fall away and some things stick and some things don't uh, and i think we're we're kind of watching this space at the moment with with that you know if you take the uh just a, a slightly different example but if you take the, the kind of beetroot juice idea uh you know that came along and revolutionized how people think about um nitrates as such and and actually it seems to be standing the test of time and it doesn't work for everybody particularly if you're very elite but for recreational athletes in certain conditions yeah, it seems seems that nitrates are, are something to do so you know we, we need to be open-minded but we also need to wait for the the kind of science this is the way i look at things anyway great advice thanks gareth that's that's everything from me thanks for that okay Super. Well, listen. Thanks very much for being on the show today, Gareth. It's been uh, it's been great chatting to you. Very informative. Uh, are you uh, Have you finished now for the day, or have you got something uh, left? Yeah, I think I, I think I'm done. I'm going to go back and uh, look after two two little ones. <laughs> ah, well, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>